Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. Precious Lord, as we approach this oh-so-familiar text, open our hearts and minds uh, to hear a new word today, to encounter your revelation in a new way, that our hearts and minds might be transformed, that we might be made just a little more into your image, and that we might go forth into the world bearing witness to your goodness. In the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I have the best parents in the world. Uh, when I was growing up, I didn't think that necessarily, uh, but in hindsight, my parents are incredible. Um, on the good days, they were there for all the good things, and on the bad days, they chased after me. Um, when there was times to celebrate, when there were awards to receive, they were there cheering for me. When I was uh, not uh, behaving well, they were chasing after me. Uh, when I was uh, in need of discipline, they were disciplining me. Uh, starting in about fourth grade, I uh, rebelled about every possible way you could. Uh, that was the between summer between third and fourth grades when I started smoking. It's when I started stealing dad's beer. Uh, it's when I tried to shoplift from the little uh, gas station down the road. Um, cigarettes were $1.50 a pack at that time. You tried to shoplift for those. So. Um, and at every turn, my parents caught me, uh, disciplined me, and tried to love me well even in the midst of it. They had ground me. They talk about why these things were not right. And then my punishment would be over, and I'd go do the same thing again. For about six years, every time I got off punishment... Uh, I would go do something ridiculous again. Um, my parents started locking up uh, mom's cigarettes in the cabinet. They started counting them. I didn't know they were doing that. That's how they caught me some of the last times that they were counting them. Um, they would, uh, my father had bird watching uh, binoculars. He would watch me getting off the bus to make sure I didn't like go anywhere else before I came to the house. Um, he would tra like trace us down in the woods to find us misbehaving. Uh, he had spies throughout the neighborhood. Uh, our neighborhood pool was our favorite place to get in trouble. We'd hang out for five or six hours playing poker and smoking cigarettes and drinking beer with these teenage lifeguards. And uh, Dad finally placed sentinels at all the houses around the pool who would sit there with their binoculars uh, and find out what was going on and let him know. At every turn, he disciplined me. And he'd tell me why. No matter how many times I rebelled or misbehaved or ran away or whatever I did, no matter how many times I said, I hate you, I can't believe this, my friend's parents aren't like this, they pursued me. At the time, I thought my father was a horrible disciplinarian. He was harsh. Why would you punish me that much for these kind of things? All my other friends got to do this, this, or this. Uh, I made the mistake prom, uh, around prom time of saying, 
I wanted to go to prom and then to this party afterwards. Uh, That was a a no-go at all. And instead of allowing me even the temptation, it was, we're just not going to do this prom thing. At the time, I felt like they were so mean. Looking back, my parents were incredible parents who at every point pursued me who tried to keep me in wholeness and in goodness, who uh, despite my rebellion and despite my rejection of their love even at times, loved me well. I didn't understand that they were that good at the time. Uh, Frankly, it's taken me, uh, even having my own kids, to see how how they can act. Um, Someone once said that if you don't believe in original sin, see a three-year-old. I was like, ah, that's true. They never gave up on me. I still could have turned out with all kinds of problems. I had plenty of friends whose parents were just as good as mine. And how we end up is not a judgment on our parents. But man, mine were awesome. As I've reflected on the type of parents my parents were, I think I've started to understand God a little better. Throughout God's story, God pursues his people relentlessly. From the moment uh, humanity sins in the garden, through the patriarchs, through their time in Egypt, through their wanderings in the desert, through entering the land, through judges and kings, through rebellion, through exile, through this quiet time between the exile and the return, between the return and Jesus, God continually pursues his people despite their rebellion, despite their rejection of him at times, despite their claims that he's not good and there are better things. At every turn, God pursues his people. God continually demonstrates his love even when they reject him. Uh, The Gospel of John uh, starts with that interesting beginning, right, that uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The same word that was in the beginning with God and was God and through him all things came into being. This this new way of God pursuing us. God had pursued through other people and now God becomes people to pursue us. I love that uh, in John's gospel the first miracles are at a wedding where he turns water into wine, where life is found amongst a community. I love that his first teachings happen in the dark of night by confused people who don't understand God. Nicodemus, this teacher of the law, this Pharisee, this member of the Sanhedrin, comes to Jesus by night. He goes, we know you're a teacher from God. That's the only way you could do these things. Three chapters in, and Jesus is already building this following of people who see that God is doing something different. That there's something different about Jesus. These Pharisees should be the most knowledgeable and most understanding, right? They should be the most in tune to what God is doing. And he goes, you must be a teacher from God, because how else could you do this? And, and Jesus doesn't just give him a simple 
yeah, you're right, does he? He, he rolls quickly into this whole imagery of being born again. I bet if you flipped to six different translations, they'd have six different ways of dealing with this passage. Uh, they'd be footnotes after footnotes. There'd be, the Greek says so-and-so. The text Brian read said that you must be born anew. This is the, the invitation Jesus gives Nicodemus. Uh, many of us who grew up in evangelical circles heard, you must be born again, right? Um, if you have the NRSV or some other translations, you probably see that it says, uh, you must be born from above. Um, there's this strange Greek word, anothen, here, that sets up this whole passage in, in pretty interesting ways. This word has two meanings. Uh, above, up in the heights, or again, like doing something for a second time. Every time it's used in the Greek Old Testament, it's talking about from above. It's used dozens of times to talk about the heights of the tabernacle and these things above, the way God is working on above things. The, uh, all the other cases of this word talk about above. Um, you must be born from above. Begotten from on high, maybe. If I was translating it, the... Chad Foster approved translation would be, you must be begotten from on high. But Nicodemus goes with the much less common and much more obtuse meaning. You must be born again. I have to re-enter a womb? How is this possible? Surely this can't happen, right? This teacher of the law who's uh, supposed to be as learned as anybody, who's just acknowledged that Jesus comes from God... already seems to ask how can four times in this passage he asks questions about surely it can't or how can he seems to doubt that God can Jesus says no uh, you're born of the flesh but you're also born of the spirit you're you're born from humanity but you're also uh, born from above I love the language of begottenness it talks about uh, really the uh, kind of the um, whose you are of birth. Um, I'd like to think about it in terms of, of really even our essence and who we are, our, our DNA in some way. We're born of humanity, but through this new birth, this begottenness from above, we are completely changed. Uh, in a patriarchal culture like this, uh, original sin would have been passed on through the dad. That would have been the view. Uh, if you, if you uh, had an earthly father, you had sin, right? Jesus has no earthly father. He's born without sin. And we're now offered a new father. We're told to be uh, begotten from above. To be born anew. To be changed in who we are. Not on the basis of our humanity, but on the basis of what the Spirit is doing in and through us. And Nicodemus is like, huh? I don't get it. Jesus tries another example. Uh, hey, Nicodemus, uh, back in the day, 
the people in Israel were out in the desert and these snakes are attacking them and the only way that they could be saved is by looking to this bronze snake that was held on high, this sign of God's faithfulness. This is how they were delivered from the snakes. I'm going to have to be held up high like this and you're going to have to turn to me in order to be saved. And Nicodemus is kind of like, huh? Jesus says, the only way we can get to heaven is through the one who has descended from heaven. The one who has taken on flesh and dwelt among us allows us to ascend, to be born again, to be begotten from above. But why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life, right? Uh, if you know a scripture, you know that one, right? It's the uh, John 3.16 that uh, Tebow liked to put on his little eye patches. That's, uh, if people hold up a sign on ESPN, it's there. It, it's the memory verse, right? It's like Nicodemus, if you don't get this idea of being born again, being begotten from above, about being transformed, if you don't get that... Uh, I have to be the one you turn to. Here's the deal. God loved the world that he sent me. His only begotten son. His only given son. But whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If we read verse 17 or verse 16 like that, uh, we tend to read it as, For God so loved Bill that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him would not or. For God so loved Bill that if Bill believed in him, we, he would not perish, right? Or if uh, Dennis believed in him, Dennis would not perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that everyone who believes in him would not perish but would have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Uh, this isn't the language of earth. This isn't language of uh, gaze would be what we're talking about, about the, firm, the firmament. This is the language of the cosmos. He sent his son in the world that all of the created order might be saved. That sure seems like God pursuing his people in a new way. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, full of grace and truth. The word who was with God in the beginning, who is God, through whom all things are made, the only begotten of God the Father, the one who offers us a new birth from God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the one who allows our very essence to be transformed that we might be saved comes to redeem the whole of the world. Nicodemus kind of fades off after this passage. He doesn't have some life-changing moment where he goes, I believe the, the scales have been lifted off my eyes and I understand this completely, does he? Just kind of turn the page. And if you don't read carefully, you don't think you ever hear of Nicodemus again, but he drops in in just two other quick places. In John chapter 7, uh, they come after Jesus uh, and the Sanhedrin's ready to, to kind of go ahead and convict him without a trial. And we read that a Pharisee named Nicodemus said, let's give him a trial according to our laws. If he's righteous, he'll, 
he won't be convicted. And then we just turn the page, and that's quiet on Nicodemus. Right? We don't hear from him again, do we? Kathy's right. We do hear from him again in, in the death story. When they take his body down and they want to go bury him, we're familiar that it's Joseph of Arimathea who uh, got the tomb for him. But the text says that Nicodemus brings 75 pounds of myrrh to bury Jesus. This is like a burial fit for a king. We don't know what happened that night with Nicodemus. We don't know if he could walk away and say, I experienced a uh, begottenness from above. We don't know if he left understanding what it meant to be born again or even what it meant for God to save the cosmos. But he knew that this teacher was from God and that this teacher was God. A king deserving of a king's burial. God pursued him in that darkness that night. Met him exactly where he was and offered him new life. God has pursued his people throughout time and space up to and including offering himself for us. God continues to pursue you to this day. There's a good chance you've already experienced being born again or being begotten from above. But it's a new gift offered day after day that the whole of the cosmos might be saved. He didn't say uh, in order that everybody might have it easy or that uh, things would never have problems or that the world would feel uh, chipper, right? It's that the world might be saved. I love that uh, in John's story, uh, we see at the end that he actually invites, uh, that Jesus invites his disciples to be part of offering that new life to the world. Go feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. So even if we have experienced our being born again, being begotten from above, however we want to translate this world, if we have begun to experience that the world is being transformed through Christ, we're offered a part in that to go and bear witness to that in the world. And it starts right here, right in this building as we raise up our kids and our youth. It happens right in these halls as we go to Sunday school and to Bible study and to men's group and to United Methodist Women. It happens down the hall as the prayer intercessors pray during the service. It happens up here as the choir offers us glimpses of heaven. And then it happens as we go out of these walls filled with the Spirit, bearing witness to the way God is already transforming the world. We're in this series in, uh, through the valley. Carol invited us last week to consider what it means to be a people who can withstand temptation because of Jesus' temptation. This week we see that we, we are in the valley without Jesus, but with him, he stoops down into this valley and begins to lift us out to draw us up to the highest of heights. He does this in incredible ways as he pursues each one of us regardless of where we are and invites us to go with him as we pursue others. Not in some 
win the world kind of way, but as a way of bearing witness to God's goodness. Not in a manipulative, nasty, us versus them way, but as in a grace-filled, light-bearing witness way that says, look at what our God is doing. I love this church. Every time I come into it, I get glimpses of the way God has transformed you, of the way your new birth is already uh, bearing fruit. When I look a map, look at a map of the 40509, uh, I can see that this part of town is different because what God has done in and through the people at Andover. I have great prayers for what the next 20 years of that looks like. I tend to, to think in a seven-day timeline, timeline. What has to happen this week? Who has to be visited this week? Uh, who's going to teach this class? What is going to happen? Those seven days are important. Somebody's got to teach our kids Sunday school class. Somebody's got to pray in and Somebody's got to collect the offering, right? But I also love to think, and what does this world look like in 20 years if we are faithful if we live out of our new birth and we join God in what he's doing, if we bear witness to the way he is pursuing the world, if we become conduits of his grace, if we invite others into the means of grace, what does it look like 20 years from now? What does it look like when these kids who are in our kids' room are bringing their kids into the church? What does it look like when we're baptizing their babies and holding their weddings? The 40509 looks nothing like it did 20 years ago. Uh, from my understanding, it would look like a big old farmland out here about 20 years ago, right? And now it's a place filled with people, filled with businesses, and filled with those who have been transformed by our God who pursues you better than any human parent ever could. My parents were incredible. They pursued me and cared for me and loved me. I put them up there against anybody's parents in terms of how good they were. And it pales in comparison to the way God has pursued his people and continues to pursue them today. In Lent, we, uh, we don't count the Sundays in Lent, we count Sundays as many Easter's still, as resurrection days in the midst of the darkness, because we know, we know what God does in Christ. We know what it looks like for the Spirit to catch hold of people. We know what it looks like for the church to be the church. And so we're going to celebrate that. We're going to celebrate that as we come to the table, as a people who desire God's grace, that we might be filled we might be fed in our new birth, that we might continually be transformed from above and that we might go forth and bear witness to whose we are.